Welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. This week, on the 10-year anniversary of the 2008 financial crisis, we are talking about one of the potential billionaires most responsible for that crisis, former Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson. Hear all about how, during his time as CEO of Goldman Sachs, he turned it into an openly criminal organization and then continued his work for Goldman Sachs during the time he was George W. Bush's Treasury Secretary. Hear about how he appointed Goldman Sachs officials to run AIG and operated the bailouts in a way that benefited Goldman Sachs, and about how he uh, doesn't believe in medicine and heals himself through prayer, like many other Americans. All that and more coming up on Grubstakers. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens, and they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. In five, four, three, two. Hello, and welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. We're back. Sean P. McCarthy here, joined by Steve Jeffries, Yogi Paul, and Andy Palmer. <laughs> and uh, uh, this week, uh, we're taking a look at Hank Paulson. Um, Hank Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary um, of the United States, former CEO of Goldman Sachs. And we're also taking a look at the 2008 financial crisis more generally. Um, mm-hmm. We were just past the 10-year anniversary. On September 15, 2008, uh, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, setting off the whole financial meltdown. And um, uh, we just passed this 10-year anniversary point. And really, Hank Paulson, his entire thing is it could have been worse, you know? Like, he's been on this kind of tour for a few years now where he's like, oh, things could have been a lot worse with the 2008 meltdown. And it's like... Well, 9.3 million people got foreclosed on, and Donald Trump is the president right now. So it's like, how could it be worse? How much worse? It's a pretty good defense because you could say that after committing any crime. You Mm. know what I mean? Like, hey, I only only murdered seven people. It's not eight. It could have been worse. Like, it's a perfectly good way to make yourself seem not nearly as bad as you truly are. Yeah. And, uh, and like, even Hank Paulson will acknowledge this, just like a, a few different statistics, but uh, the largest 10 banks in the United States held about 10% of banking assets in 96. By 2006, when he became Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush, they right. held about 50% of banking assets. Today, it's over 77%. Wow. So it's like their entire strategy for combating this financial crisis was to create these even more mega private banking corporations. And then even today, they tell us that nationalization would have would have been worse. And it's like, again, 9.3 million foreclosures, the majority of which were fraudulent. Right, right. So it's like, what what the fuck is their definition of worse? <laughs> when the government does things? Hey, like, I could have lost money on this deal. It could have been right. worse. <laughs> and it's just like, there's really two interpretations of Hank Paulson's year in the financial crisis. It's like, either he just ran around like an idiot with his lack of hair on fire, uh, you know, like... Uh, just doing things at the last minute and not looping in British regulators that he was trying to get Barkley to buy Lehman. So, of course, they vetoed it because he had months to let them know anything was going on and he didn't. Mm -hmm. 
or that he acted in a way that was perhaps, you know, corrupt and beneficial to his old form, firm, Goldman Sachs, where he helped inflate the very crisis that he would be tasked with solving by uh, uh, selling all of these fraudulent mortgage-backed securities and then getting credit default swaps against them from AIG financial products. And, and you know, so it's like either he's a corrupt, either he's an idiot, or he's just blinded by ideology. Whatever the case... It, Again, an impressive track record of destruction, we must all admit. Have you guys ever been in a situation where you're like leading something and then like you're seeing the storm about to hit, but no one's <laughs> listening to you? Have you, have you ever been in that situation? Well, in a profound sense, I'm assuming it, the crisis like destroyed most of this pod's life. So. <laughs> Though, speaking of which, like, it is something where it's, like, it's kind of tiring to, like, do these financial episodes because it's complicated. It can be a lot of work. They're very dense. Yeah, trying to explain that. it. Yeah. And, you know, and it, but it is, like, it does take back, you know, like, when we were first starting this, we had the, well, I had the idea. I wanted to call the podcast Kill the Bankers. And, uh, you know, had we done that... <laughs> We we'd probably have maybe a thousand listeners. Okay, but let's not get too crazy here. About half of them would be state and federal prosecutors. <laughs> but like, it is something where it's like I should be clear. There's a lot of people in this story of the 2008 financial crisis who deserve to die. But I should be very clear. I would never advocate extrajudicial murder of any of these. No, people. no, no. Of course not. I would suggest rather that in some sort of post-revolutionary government there would be a people's tribunal at which I would sit as a Chairman Mao-like figure <laughs> oh. and uh, have these people's uh, family members execute them in uh -huh. order to prove loyalty to my new revolutionary now state. Now, this, this people's tribunal, who yes. else is on this board with you? Mostly me. <laughs> a couple figureheads that I have scared into submission. Um, but yes, I mean, this is obviously, as we all know, true socialism. But, um, yes, Sean being on the board that decides who kills who is socialism. <laughs> I'm reading the biography of uh, Mao, Chairman Mao. Uh -huh. and it, you Not know what? shocking, by the yes. way. <laughs> uh, I will say he is an inspiration to fail sons everywhere <laughs> because he ac accomplished like basically nothing until his mid-30s and just read a lot of books and sat around the house and didn't want to work. And then nice. he, he went on to kill more than 70 million people. Wow. So you can do it, too, if you're listening. As someone whose favorite movie is Office Space, this yes. gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> really, he did nothing until his mid thirties, and then read a whole bunch of books, and then not now... really. Yeah, he essentially just kind of got in on the uh, uh, the communist uh, movement, and then he got the Communist Party of Russia to bankroll him to set up a bookshop to distribute communist propaganda, and then he essentially ran off with an army of communists during an uprising, uh -huh. and ran off to the the mountains with this army. And because he had this army, he was able to consistently use that to negotiate a better and better position for himself. Right, right, right. Um, wow. But yeah, it's a fascinating story. But uh, neither here nor there. To kind of returning to Hank Paulson. Um, Hank Paulson. Uh, On the topic is... of averted Maoist uprisings, <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to Hank Paulson yes. and the bank bailouts and yeah. all that jazz. Yeah, and so Hank Paulson, as far as like net worth goes, uh, he became, again, CEO of Goldman Sachs from 98 to 2006. He becomes the U.S. Treasury Secretary in 2006, and at this point, he has to sell off his Goldman Sachs stock because, uh, believe it or not, in government, we used to have the idea that you were supposed to divest yourself. <laughs> uh, fortunately, the electorate has soundly rejected that. Um, but so he, he sold about uh, $500 million, uh, thereabouts, of Goldman Sachs stock in 2006. 
and because of another law um, that said that if you sell stock to become part of the government, you don't have to pay <laughs> capital gains taxes on it, he was able to save anywhere from 30 to $200 million in state and uh, federal capital gains taxes. So this was a huge windfall. And he also managed to empty all his Goldman stock right before the uh, bottom fell out. Right. So he was worth at least $700 million in 2006. And uh, we can't really find a source, but I think it is reasonable to assume that he has since become a billionaire just based on the usual 7 to 10% annual appreciation of capital. Yes, we couldn't find a source because all of them kept getting murdered. <laughs> Um, and uh, also his son uh, owns the uh, Portland Timbers MLS team. But it's... Uh, Boo! Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is the worst part about the Paulson family. Yes. <laughs> Besides his deformity is what we really hate about him. And his other son, uh, RuPaul, uh, <laughs> continuously carries out illegal drag racing. Too dangerous. Flaunting it in, in, on, on major television networks. This is how Paul Walker was killed. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but just uh, uh, one brief thing on the Portland Timbers MLS team. Um, this is from the Reddit MLS board. <laughs> the greatest investigative journalists <laughs> uh, in all of Reddit. But they found that uh, it's... Uh, Sean, we made a rule not to be... Uh, not to let there be overt sexism on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, and quoting Reddit uh, seems to be walking right into a bear trap <laughs> on that front. Uh, in between all of the upskirt photos, I have managed to find <laughs> some incredible investigative journalism uh, on the uh, Reddit MLS board. But so basically, they found that the Portland Timbers are owned by Peregrine Sports LLC, which is kind of a black box LLC where Hank Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary, is the major principal investor. Uh, and then that his son, Merritt, who owns the uh, Portland Timbers, basically got all of his money from Hank Paulson, his father, to buy this team. So Hank Paulson certainly has some sort of stake or ownership in the team. And it's named after a bird, and he's an avid bird watcher. Oh, the Portland Timbers? <laughs> no, Peregrine. Oh, yeah, Peregrine Sports LLC. But yes. Mind his... you, his son and himself and his father all named Henry, so... Hmm. It gets a little confusing when you're researching them, and it's like, which Henry do you mean? That's why his son goes by Merritt. Mm-hmm. And uh, just just for clarification, a timber is not a bird, uh, but it is actually a tree. <laughs> well, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, so Sean totally wasn't talking some... about peregrine sports. But... Sean seemed to have some confusion on that point. A timber is uh, reference. It's a, a generalized word for a tree. Oh, okay. Well, I was I was just going to post the correction in our Tumblr, but I guess <laughs> I guess we took care of it here. But yes, his son is called Merritt, and uh, that is not how he bought the Portland Timbers. <laughs> um, but so before we get into just kind of like the bio of uh, Hank Paulson himself uh, and just like the financial crisis uh, more generally, I do just want to mention something that I have mentioned on this podcast before, but it's worth going over because nobody ever talks about it in the general mainstream corporate, whatever media you want to call. But we tell uh, the truth, Exactly. Man. Uh, it's essentially mortgage electronic registry survey. And this is something that was set up by the banks in yeah, the, tell me, Sean. the 1990s um, to essentially allow <clears throat> them to do their mortgage-backed securities. Yeah. And so uh, basically 
when you're doing a, a property transfer, you're supposed uh-huh. to go to public records and spend about 30 bucks documenting in the public that you're transferring your property from this person to this person. But because the mortgage-backed securities were flipping around Wall Street banks so much, they just thought it would be easier if they set up their own internal system called MERS, which tracked internally all the transfers, the back and forths that the Wall Streets were doing. And then, of course... This allows them There's to just s- one Wall Street. Yes. This <laughs> sounding like Sarah Palin here. Uh, but this, of course, allows them to save the $30 fee every time there's a transfer and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And also because it's now a black box. So you just kind of there's more than 70 million mortgages in America that are registered with MERS. And you just kind of have to trust that the bank that attempts to foreclose on you actually owns it because they have not been transferring your property the proper way through public records. Instead, they've just been bouncing it around their own little black box internal system. So it is argued by a lot of uh, very smart legal people that these 70 million mortgages... Those are called lawyers. These 70 million mortgages under MERS have no legal standing to foreclose and that there was a lot... And this is where robo-signing comes from where they faked up all these documents to do foreclosures. So again, we mentioned the 9.3 million foreclosures, but it's just something where it's never really talked about in terms of the financial crisis is that almost 10 million people lost their homes and probably the majority of that was completely illegal and it was all just swept under the rug by people like Hank Paulson. Robo-signers is also what the uh, deaf called subtitles... (laughs) Um, But yes, so uh, Hank Paulson uh, So they did all that to avoid a $30 fee? That was the whole gambit? On every transfer So it's like if you're swapping these things back and forth 20 or 100 times, that adds up And also like, you know um, Yeah, the the fee was part of it And then there were also It allowed them to kind of shield What they were doing from regulators They could have had to spend up to (laughs) (laughs) $3,000 You gay Um But, you know, if you have, like, thousands of mortgages packed into, like, one security and you're bouncing them around, again, it yeah. does kind of no, it does up. save you a lot of money. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, again. So do a lot of the fake money you're creating. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Under the, uh, during the Great Depression, you know, FDR set up the HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, which bought up, like, a million distressed mortgages and, like, kept people in their homes. And we just, we really didn't have that under either Obama or Paulson. We we had like a mishmash of programs that were like, "Hey, sit down and have a conversation with your lender, <laughs> right. and Sean, maybe they'll be nice yeah, to you." Better Sean, education. Yeah. We uh, we foamed the runways. <laughs> we, we foamed the foreclosure runway, mm-hmm. and uh, because of all the foam, uh, uh, people couldn't foreclose as fast because uh, in uh, aviation, uh, foam slows down airplanes. Mm. That's what we're doing. We're uh, slowing down the uh, airplane that you're still homeless, uh, but we home the runway. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, but uh, so unfortunately... Uh, I like to think that entire conversation was, hey, you got to tell them that they're still homeless. <laughs> <laughs> 90 minutes of foam runway. Uh, Mr. Mr. President, Look. remind them that they're homeless. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, foam is uh, very comfortable to sleep on. You know? <laughs> Lots of people would love to sleep on foam. Have you ever thought about this? Many mattresses, in fact, are made out of foam. Out of, out of memory foam, uh, <laughs> which you uh, cannot afford. <laughs> you'll be homeless, but you'll remember it for a long time. Yeah, you'll get uh, to think about uh, airplanes, and those are pretty cool. Yeah, and so um, Hank Paulson has the voice of a a man who should have died of emphysema ten years ago. <laughs> Um, he and really he, does. And he spent most of the financial crisis uh, dry heaving in meetings. 
He um, also has a face that um, adds graininess to high definition. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real punchable face. Yeah, I, d- I don't know what it is, but he's just it's, he's just got like specs built into his face. It's, it's but not Christian freckles. science, actually. Yeah, it's <laughs> all natural. We'll get into it. Yeah. Oh, he's a Christian scientist? Um, yes, he is oh, a Christian scientist. that's why he was scientist. dry heaving. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't... <laughs> doesn't take medicine. Doesn't um, take kindly to Western medicine. So. <laughs> All he uh, needs is a reading room in time. <laughs> but before we move on to, to Hank Paulson's kind of chronological uh, biography, I thought maybe the former chairman of the Federal Reserve could explain the 2008 financial crisis to us and our listeners and maybe we can just comment on any other thoughts we have on the financial crisis before we go back in time a little this bit. This is taken directly mm. from a, a reel-to-reel tape that was in the room at the time. Okay, this is Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. I spent my entire academic career studying the Great Depression. The Depression may have started because of a stock market crash, but what hit the general economy was a disruption of credit. Average citizens unable to borrow money, to do anything, to buy a home, uh, start a business, stock their shelves. Credit has the ability to build a modern economy, but lack of credit has the power to destroy it swiftly and absolutely. If we do not act boldly and immediately, we will replay the depression of the 1930s. Only this time, it will be far, far worse. We don't do this now. We won't have an economy on Monday. And uh, uh, Hank Paulson was actually in the room and had this to say in response. I know I fucked up. I know I did a bad thing, all right? And I know I'm a bad person. I know I am. But you gotta help me. You have to help me, Miles. Okay? Tell me you'll help me. If I lose Christine, I I, I am nothing. Miles is uh, uh, is Ben Bernanke's nickname. And, uh, Christina is what he calls his fortune. I thought it was... It was I thought it was interesting when Ben Bernanke assured Eazy e that he did not steal money from him. <laughs> uh... That was, of course, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Ben Giamatti uh, <laughs> in the uh, hit HBO documentary, Too Big to Fail, um, which is based on the Andrew Ross Sorkin book that tells the events. And there's been a lot of stuff online about how different participants basically just lied to Andrew Ross Sorkin. Oh, really? And because he's like, he, he found a couple things that were interesting, which we'll get into, but, you know, he's... A kind of a, a deal book New York Times journalist who just uh, credulously copies down what the uh, rich and powerful tell him without uh, <laughs> yeah. too much dispute. Um, but yes, uh, we thought that w- really was the, the best explanation. Is um, I could have used probably 18 more descriptions of what people do with money. He's <laughs> 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 like... Ben Bernanke went on to say, like, this could be the worst thing since I tried to fire Howard Stern. <laughs> they get hot pockets. <laughs> People can't go out and get their hot pockets. They can't. <laughs> They're just locked in their rooms. They get wine, but they don't get any fucking Merlot. <laughs> um, but so uh, Hank Paulson, um, 
has got had a uh, interesting career. He was born uh, relatively wealthy, though it is uh, not exactly easy to find much information about his um, early life. Which is uh, a problem with billionaires that we've been talking about since episode one. Yes, that they're shielded by their uh, wealth and they allow their uh, history and uh, past to be hidden from the common folk like you and me. Yeah, speaking of which, listeners, here's your challenge. Uh, Find more than three sentences about the time Hank Paulson spent in the Nixon White House. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, uh, all of his official biography documents are rather scarce on this point. Um, Who did he work for in the White House? Was it Haldeman? uh, I think he worked for Ehrlichman. Yes. Same yes. person. Yes. Uh, he was the assistant to Ehrlichman from 72 to 73. Ehrlichman would, of course, uh, later go to prison. He, uh, mm. Hank Paulson drove the bus that Nixon threw him under. <laughs> um, but so... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so Hank Paulson is born in Florida in 1945. He has two younger siblings, but his, he's raised on a farm in Illinois. In Illinois. Um, his Sufi and <laughs> Stephen's album over here. <laughs> his his father, he just Hank Paulson describes his father as a taskmaster, and that, this is from the book um, Money and Power: How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World by William Cohen. Uh, quote: Much of Paulson's early life revolved around his family's seventy-five acre farm in Barrington, Illinois, about forty miles west of downtown Chicago. Uh, we always had horses, hogs, cows, sheep, and chickens, not to mention my pet raccoon and crow, Paulson wrote in his 2010 oh. memoir. Pet raccoon. That's pretty adorable. Yes. Like, <laughs> that might be my favorite billionaire adorable fact so far. <laughs> it's like Paulson talks about how uh, his wife kind of tolerated him letting the raccoon run around the house. And I was like, oh, that's <laughs> the story of why my children are now blind. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Their but, poop does make you go blind. Yes, yeah. uh, but uh, so yes, Paulson. Not well, the the, I, one time the raccoon bit him, and because they're Christian scientists, they didn't get it treated <laughs> until the last minute. Yeah, and so they prayed it away. Yeah, being a Christian scientist must save you a lot on veterinary bills. <laughs> um, but so he, yeah. that boy loved that raccoon. Actually, <laughs> he spent hours in his room with him. Uh, no one understands me like you. <laughs> Only but, you understand the importance of CDSs. <laughs> I will say, I will say, the few black uh, colleagues he's had ha- have had issue with him using the word "coon" constantly. So that's been problematic. They don't understand his upbringing. <laughs> they don't. They don't understand what he went through. And what how, what, he what li- that raccoon gave to him. <laughs> he, he was like, "No, many of my friend Paul Giamatti's clients are black, <laughs> so it's okay." Um. But so, yes, like, uh, and he describes this early period of his life is where he really got into, like, uh, he wanted to be a park ranger, I guess, up until he went to college. Uh, you know, later with Goldman Sachs, he would go into a bunch of conservation nonprofits, which, again, like. Man, I fucking love how, like, fucking folksy the dreams of billionaires are before they decide to destroy <laughs> the world. It's like, yeah. I wanted to be an author or, I don't know, yeah. I, I thought I'd be the a marine biologist for for aquarium. It's like fucking, and then and all of a sudden I realized I needed money to do shit, and then the world had to burn. <laughs> right. I mean, it is funny, like his career at Goldman, like just being the very lubricant in the gears that are melting the planet to death, <laughs> and being like, yeah, occasionally I pick up garbage in yeah. the forest, yeah. so I'm doing my part. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Greenspan played the clarinet before. He, <laughs> before he... That's fucking crazy. He wanted to be a park ranger. Yeah. And um, 
So Greenspan played the clarinet. Yeah, he played jazz clarinet before well, he became an economist. That's uh, one thing he shares with Woody Allen. Yeah. Well, I know what he would have been doing on the Titanic. <laughs> uh, but so, um, yeah, so... Throwing women out of the lifeboat so you get a seat. <laughs> <laughs> I have a child! You didn't read it all. The, the, the band boards the life raft first. <laughs> It would be an unfair government intervention if we moved the wheel away from this iceberg. <laughs> but so the uh, the early life of Paulson, and then it, it is just kind of like, again, 75-acre uh, farm in like a relatively uh, prosperous area of the country. Uh, 75 Barrington. acres is a, is a big a chunk lot. of land. It's like two sizes of the Pentagon. Yeah. Uh, we oh, yeah, spent what? 10 minutes calculating this <laughs> for <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Got really into it. <laughs> it's, trying, to, it's trying to figure out what seventy-five acres yes. is equivalent to or closest to. Yeah, uh, twelve. Are you not entertained? Yes. <laughs> totally unrelated, but Andy Palmer did not take his ADD medication this morning. <laughs> um, but so uh, I did, but it was canceled out by staying up until four playing Cripple Space Program. <laughs> Uh, so the 75 acre farm, uh, his wife and him would later go on to buy five acres of that from his parents, the way we all do, uh, to build their house and raise their kids there and have the raccoon run around and stuff. So he had a, a relatively privileged upbringing. Certainly live on a farm. It's really hard to lie to your children about your dog dying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want the audience to know the raccoon part Sean just said is fake. He's not <laughs> buying five acres so raccoons can run around. As adorable as that sounds. No, he all, said that. He said this in an interview. Wait, really? He said that? Yes, he said that his wife tolerated him allowing a raccoon to run throughout their house. Okay, yeah, but... Nice. Oh, yeah. I like meant, a fucking Disney movie <laughs> where he's the villain. <laughs> <laughs> the animal needs a lot of space, though. It's so sweet. It's like a dog that's not trained and doesn't have any self-control. He tried with sharper well, he tried teeth. To get the tra- and when he went to Goldman, he tried to like bring your raccoon to work day. <laughs> you know? Hank Paulson was like, the hardest thing of our childhood was listening to Cinderella constantly beg to be let out of the basement. <laughs> uh, but so um, uh, he goes to Dartmouth uh, and he gets an English degree. Uh, he plays safety on, ivy. Yes, he plays on the football team at Dartmouth, which is where he fucks up his pinky. Which, if you watch the uh, Netflix uh, documentary of the, the, that he commissioned, which is complete fluff piece and a total waste of time, and you Propaganda. should not, you should not watch it, except for the part where you keep looking at his fucked up pinky and being like, "Is somebody going to do something about that?" <laughs> because I should not have to watch this on a high definition television. Yeah, in an interview, uh, he talked about uh, the finger got dislocated, and the coach pulled it out and jammed it back in, and uh, it's been fucked up since. I like the idea of Hank Paulson being like, yeah, for some reason, the football player who uh, messed up my pinky would later go on to murder-suicide his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if there was any sort of connection there. Yeah, Paulson's... Everything that Paulson did as a billionaire is just like a version of CTE violence. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like they were totally unaware AIG was in trouble until the weekend that Lehman went bankrupt. <laughs> and I, yeah, I like the idea that it's just like CTE and like lack of memory, <laughs> where he constantly assures people we're doing things about the financial crisis. Meanwhile, he's just like looking at birds and shit. 
I just black out and <laughs> drive the economy into the ground. <laughs> He's like a regular decent person, but then he just looks at the pinky and the pinky <laughs> starts taking control. Um, but so he meets his wife in college, Wendy. They've been married 30 some years, uh, you know. And it's like this would later, he's a pretty, uh, at least by his own account and everything we can tell, a pretty straight and narrow guy, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't take a medicine of any kind. <laughs> he's a Christian scientist. Um, his body's a temple. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but so he meets his wife, Wendy, at, uh, in college. Uh, he gets his English degree, um, and then he later goes on to Harvard Business School to get an MBA. He gets married at this time, and they get their little farm on uh, his family's farm. And uh, then he goes on to a job at the Pentagon in uh, June 1970. Um, and so basically... Which he feels is small because he's used to <laughs> twice the size. When he, when he showed up there, he's like, this is only 2.5 times the size of where I grew up. Um, he's like, where are the raccoons here? <laughs> <laughs> far too little wildlife for me to be in a space of these dimensions. It's like, you know, we could knock out a wall and really grow this thing. And then on nine, you cut, cut this, Yogi. I got where you're going. With that. <laughs> I picked it up. Yeah, I'll work it out. <laughs> His time at the Pentagon, he was measuring dimensions to see <laughs> where the best place for a cruise missile strike would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but so yes, he gets a job at the Pentagon and then like he writes in his biography and they talk about it in this. This is a tangent by the way, but yeah. the day before nine eleven, uh, Rumsfeld gave a speech to the Pentagon about how they really needed to downsize and cut out the bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> God, the Himmler parallels are really eerie with Rumsfeld. It's like, wow, that guy, that guy had a powerful vision board. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Came true. <laughs> um, but so, uh, yeah, so uh, he writes about this in his biography and they talk about it in the Netflix doc. But ironically, during his time at the Pentagon, he works on a bailout for Lockheed, the weapons contractor. Again, you know, this is uh, Nixon. So during the Vietnam War. This is before Lockheed met Martin. Exactly. Uh, it was during the Vietnam War. So there's uh, they're having some, some trouble financially. And then the Nixon White House decides... Lockheed is like essential for national security or whatever, so um, we have to bail it out. So there's like a, a debate, but in his capacity at the Pentagon, Paulson helps the Lockheed bailout, and it's like, oh, this is my first bailout or whatever <laughs> other folksy story the 70-year-old with a billion dollars Everyone tells you to first. try to, try to humanize themselves. Like, yes, I uh, I bailed out this company that was uh, incinerating orphans in Vietnam. Yeah, he left out the part where Nixon took him aside and was like, listen, without Lockheed, we can't bur- bomb all the shit-ass countries we want to bomb. We can't kill those kids without Lockheed. Paul's quotas is being like, but we're not going to hurt the raccoons, right? <laughs> and then Nixon uh, said something that uh, would later be an expletive deleted. <laughs> His, uh, he misheard what Paulson was saying. His first uh, conservation program, removing two to three million wasteful and polluting human beings from the countryside <laughs> of Southeast Asia. That's why today people are like, you know who, you know who else loved animals? Hmm. Paulson. 
<laughs> hey, Hitler was a vegetarian. Paul's in those raccoons. I mean, the similarities, really. Yeah. Well, not to go too much in the Nazi thing, but uh, Paul. Oh, says, really, Sean? Not <laughs> not to go too far into that world. I know it's out of character for me <laughs> to talk about the regime in Germany from 1933 to 1945. <laughs> but at frequent points, Paulson really does sound like Albert Speer or something, where he's like, <laughs> "Look, there's nothing we could have done, and also I didn't know that." <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, so he, uh, um, as a result, he says as a result of his work on this bailout for Lockheed, he gets noticed by the Nixon White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes to the Nixon White House, April 72. He leaves December 73, right around Watergate is breaking. Um, but so, and he works and as, entering. as we mentioned, he works as an assistant to John Ehrlichman, uh, but he just doesn't talk about that. And, you know, you spend some time Googling and you hit a dead end. But uh, who knows what uh, things he learned that would later benefit him at his uh, career at Goldman Sachs from that uh, that particular period. And President takes him aside. He's like, Hank, neither of us are Jews. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's an important skill. You can't trust these people, Henry. <laughs> Um, but so he leaves, uh, in December 73, he writes a letter saying, uh, I am leaving. I appreciate the time here at the Nixon white house, but I got a job, uh, an investment banking job with Goldman Sachs. This is stock boy. Yes. (laughs) Um, so he starts, yeah, (laughs) he starts, uh, January, 1974. He works out of the Chicago office of Goldman Sachs. And um, he's kind of like remembered as like a workaholic. Um, again, just uh, uh, quoting um, from the uh, uh, book Money and Power by William Cohen. Um, he uh, he joins Goldman Sachs as an investment banking associate, January 1974. Uh, he was covering big industrial companies in the Midwest. Uh, quote, his early years at Goldman were tough, but then he started getting a few breaks. I was candid sometimes to the point of bluntness, recalls Paulson. That was my trademark. For a young banker without much experience, he he had a lot of chutzpah. Sometimes clients would ask him to give them a breather and not call so often. Wow. But the word began to spread around Goldman that nobody worked harder and his uh, frugality and family values, Paulson didn't drink, smoke, or chase women, played well with upper management. To be sure, sure. But he did ask a lot of customers where his hug was. <laughs> <laughs> he was relentless, wouldn't stop calling at all hours of the night. He did frequently slap aspirin out of people's hands. <laughs> <laughs> Call it Satan's temptation. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, to be sure, Paulson was no Boy Scout and he made plenty of enemies at Goldman. He's also, a, he was a Boy Scout. They, yeah, he, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was literally a Boy Scout, but he was also no Boy Scout. Well, he was like a huge Boy Scout. Well, yeah, so he got uh, the Distinguished Eagle Scout Award, apparently, which is something that you get for doing something distinguishing after getting Eagle Scout. It's like an Eagle Scout like postdoc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like it has nothing to do with like doing extra work in the Eagle Scout. You just happen to do something notable uh, within 25 years of getting Eagle Scout. And in his case, it was uh, having a shadowy position in the most corrupt presidential administration <laughs> and documented history. Yeah, so an Eagle Scout, a Distinguished Eagle Scout. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. They made like a deluxe version of Eagle Scout. Yeah, for for rich people. Yeah, for no reason really. I mean, who who goes? Well, you're an Eagle what, Scout, but are you a distinguished? Eagle what Scout? badge is that? 
Like it's uh, the uh, tank the economy merit badge. <laughs> yes, achievement unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> you. Full disclosure: I'm an Eagle Scout. It's not that hard. Now, now, Henry, if you do this for me, I think I can put in a word with the Boy Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> now we have connections, <laughs> but we gotta take these motherfuckers' heads off. <laughs> do you hear me, Henry? Uh, but so, um, basically, he works out of the Chicago office. Oh yeah, and then just a, a, a colleague on background. Uh, he says Paulson is an action-oriented person, and one of his great skills with is was identifying smart people and absorbing good ideas they had, then pulling the trigger. And uh, pulling the, the trigger. The biographer writes this person was choosing his words very carefully. Where Paulson was kind of known even on Wall Street as the snake, <laughs> which uh, I mean, again, quite the distinction was, on Wall Street was his first experience with like identifying smart people and then pulling the trigger with like <laughs> Gordon Liddy. <laughs> it's like his nickname was the snake. Uh, yes. That's his nickname was the snake. Boy, on Wall Street. to be nicknamed the snake on Wall Street. What a <laughs> Hank the snake. What a low high honor right there. <laughs> Interestingly enough, there's a Forbes profile in 2004, which describes him uh, on some like uh, he was out in nature, like driving in a truck. And then with one, the raccoon, one of his assistants pointed out a snake. And Hank got very excited and had them stop the car and went, where, where? And like bounded <laughs> out trying to look for the snake. And then they quote his wife, Wendy, as I'm paraphrasing, but being like, yeah, no, Hank likes, likes to pick up snakes and look at them, and he gets very fascinated. <laughs> and I just kind of knew by the look on his face that it was one of those snake days. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. So, that's oh. one of the, to me, that's one of the more endearing things about oh him. Yes. God. I mean, look, I don't <laughs> doubt... understood creatures. So. I love that his wife knows that some days are snake days. <laughs> that, to me... This is a snake day. That's a loving marriage right there. I feel like... I'm, I'm I might it. steal that. I'm calling it. <laughs> Hank eats butt. That's a loving marriage. All right. <laughs> Some days are snake days. You don't get you don't get to live snake day days without a little bit of butt play from time to time. Um, but so uh, yeah, and it's like yeah, I don't doubt that the guy's like really fascinated with nature watching and all this stuff, and him and his wife go on trips to like Brazil and other exotic destinations, particularly to see the wildlife. But it's like again, you're. One of the rainmakers in global capitalism, which is going to extinct all life on Earth in about a hundred years. Yeah, so. you you can be evil and have neat hobbies. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not like one of the most famous uh, rocket engineers in human history wasn't also an SS officer. Oh, that is true, huh? <laughs> the boy loved rockets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he was really into rockets. And slaves. <laughs> but also rockets. <laughs> His early NASA program to destroy the suburbs in London. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how we're going to do it. It's going to be with rockets. <laughs> um, but so uh, basically what happens in 1994... So he works his ass off in the Chicago office as an investment banker. He builds a reputation for himself. Um, and then in uh, starting in 1990, he was one of the three heads of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. And then in 1994, the CEO of Goldman Sachs at the time, a guy named Friedman, uh, he wants to step down, partly for health reasons, partly because Goldman is having a bad year in 1994. And so... Um, it's kind of controversial that he wants to step down in the middle of this um, uh, this bad year, 
but he wants to put Hank Paulson in charge, but he knows the board won't quite go for it. So he gets this other guy, John Corzine, who would later go on to be a corrupt senator and governor from New Jersey, who would also be uh, charged. You mean a senator and governor from New <laughs> yes. Jersey? Yeah. Uh, uh, who would be charged uh, several million dollars, though unfortunately not criminally imprisoned for uh, defrauding investors in his post-governorship uh, career uh, back in finance again. And banned for life from financial trading. Uh, just an absolute uh, snake who's unfortunately only worth several hundred million dollars. <laughs> and so, this dude was the safe bet. Exactly. Um, so basically, that uh, John Corzine was um, the kind of like one of the hotshot traders, whereas uh, Hank Paulson was an investment banker. And um, the, it's, it's kind of like common in uh, finance or Goldman or whatever. There's kind of a, 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 let's say, a rivalry between the traders and the investment bankers. So this is kind of like a situation where they set up um, two heads on top of the uh, totem pole in order to um, make everything better, you know. And this lasts from 94 to 98. Um, but so just kind of an interesting thing about how Paulson was able to get the CEO of Goldman, uh, this guy Friedman, uh, at the time to really look up to him as his successor. Uh, again, this is from the biography. Um, uh, Paulson had always cultivated Friedman. The two were friends, having found common ground as athletes. Indeed, at an offsite in New York's Westchester County, a few years after Paulson had joined Goldman, Free, uh, Friedman, once a national wrestling champion at Cornell, challenged Paulson, a former All-American lineman at Dartmouth, to a wrestling match. Paulson had done some intramural wrestling at Dartmouth, but mm -hmm, hadn't mm -hmm. really wrestled since he was 18. Still, he took one look at Friedman, who was smaller and lighter, and felt a bit sorry for him. Unbeknownst to him, however, Friedman was still working out regularly with the Cornell <laughs> wrestling team at the downtown <laughs> athletic club. Uh, so I took uh, so I took him down very some quickly. Fox catcher shit. So I yeah. took him down very quickly with uh, the fireman's carry. Paulson recalls the next thing I knew, I was on my back. I'd never been pinned before, so I got angry. I thought this little guy, I don't care if he is my boss, I'm going to pick him up and I'm going to hurt him. I went back at him about five or six times, and I got pinned five or six times. The next morning, when I was trying to get out of bed, it took all my pride and everything else to pretend like nothing had happened, and to get out of bed dressed and. Uh, uh, to get dressed and get there. Uh, fortunately, and he, kick Friedman out. <laughs> fortunately, his business suit covered up his bruises and scrapes. So basically, uh, among other things, Paulson was able to bond with the CEO of Goldman Sachs by wrestling him. <laughs> and that's how he became the CEO of Goldman Sachs. But uh, By losing to the Mary previous Tucker CEO? CEO? Yes. Uh, but so uh, he was... He was like, you know, recognized as uh, an important investment banker that people in the Chicago area wanted to do business with. So himself and Corzine get appointed. He gets appointed COO and Corzine gets appointed CEO. And this lasts from 94 to 98. And then there's been a lot written about essentially um, uh, Paulson kind of intrigued against Corzine, though other people will argue that Corzine just like... Uh, was kind of uh, dictatorial and expected loyalty and these kinds of things. But Paulson event eventually got him thrown out. And the way that they did this was Corzine wanted to go on a buying merger spree. And uh, the board was kind of uncomfortable with this. He wanted to, like, merge with Travelers, J.P. Morgan, Solomon Brothers. Again, this is 94 to 98. This is kind of like a big uh, merger time. And uh, we mentioned Goldman was kind of not doing so well in 94. By 95, the economy's kind of recovered and they're doing fine again. But what eventually happens is that uh, Corzine wants to merge with New York Mellon. And uh, one of Corzine's deputies, 
uh, tips off Paulson to the fact that Corzine is talking to New York Mellon without telling the board of directors. So uh, Hank Paulson confronts Corzine at a board of directors meetings with this um, information that he's like doing these merger negotiations without first informing the board. Right. Corzine runs out of the room back to his office. And from this point, Hank Paulson is... Um, <clears throat> kind of firmly establishes the number one, and then he later makes a power play, I think, later that year, where he essentially says... Who's he wrestle next? Yeah. Uh, Hank Paulson essentially tells the board, like, I'm going to leave if you don't make me CEO. And so they kick out Corzine, and Hank Paulson becomes the sole CEO of Goldman Sachs in 1998. Um, yeah, sometime around Memorial Day, 1998, Hank Paulson becomes the sole CEO of Goldman Sachs. And... Um, it is interesting where uh, Hank Paulson, again, has like this reputation as a literal Boy Scout, but uh, Goldman Sachs uh, mass uh, Goldman Sachs becomes a criminal enterprise <laughs> while Hank Paulson <laughs> is the CEO. Like, I don't know any other way to say it. Like, whatever you think about uh, finance capitalism in the United States from the 40s to uh, Reagan's deregulation in the 90s and then Clint- in the 80s and then Clinton's deregulation in the 1990s, it was... Uh, less scandal-ridden than other areas of American capitalism. Yeah, what, where, what a lot of people now call crony capitalism, mm-hmm. what some people call it anyway, Yeah, that kind of originated with Paulson and other investment banks, their CEOs turning towards like fraud is sort of their their business model for, for a number of years. That's their bread and butter. Right, and so I just want to kind of go through briefly. This is from corpresearch.org. I'll put it on the Tumblr. But basically, here's just a short list of all of the different uh, criminal actions Goldman Sachs was involved in while Hank Paulson was CEO. These are also the uh, activities that you have to complete to get the finance merit badge. Uh, In 2002, it was fined $1.65 million by uh, FINRA for failing to preserve email communications. Another interesting thing about uh, uh, Hank Paulson, and this becomes very relevant during his time as Treasury Secretary, uh, he doesn't use email. Which again, you know, it's like he just talks on the phone, which it's like you can either chalk that up to kind of like old guy uh, Luddite shit, or you can be like, oh, if I don't have any emails, none of my shit can be subpoenaed, and it's impossible for investigators to put forward an actual record of what I was doing and saying because all of my conversations are on the phone, unless you're wiretapping me. Um, Whenever I hear about something like business executive or like George W. Bush not using email, I just picture them sitting at their like empty desk waiting for someone to come in so they can do something. (laughs) Just like staring at the wall. He just gets like a pain in his stomach. It's like, I think people are mad at me on Twitter again, (laughs) but I have no idea. What a life. Um, Okay, but so yeah, it was fined for failing to preserve email communications in 2003. Um, it paid $110 million uh, for uh, part of a, s- a settlement with 10 other firms for uh, conflicts of interest between their research and investment banking activities. Um, we've kind of talked about this, but there was a big st- scandal with the dot-com boom where um, their analysts at Goldman and all the other banks were essentially just uh, telling, they were going on television telling people to buy things. They were issuing buy ratings for a lot of tech companies that in their own email records, they were calling dog shit and saying that it had no business. And they were entirely doing this because uh, the their firm either had business with these firms or was IPOing them or whatever other reason. So again, just straight up fraud and the kind of thing that could have been avoided if we hadn't uh, repealed uh, Glass-Steagall. 
Um, Sell me this pen. <laughs> in 2003, it had to pay $9.3 million in fines uh, in connection with allegations that it failed to properly oversee a former employee who had been charged with insider trading and perjury. Uh, in 2004, Goldman was one of four firms fined $5 million each by FINRA for rule violations related to trading in high-yield corporate bonds. In 2005, the SEC announced that Goldman would pay a civil penalty of $40 million to resolve allegations that it violated rules relating to the allocation of stock to institutional comp- uh, customers and IPOs, that it was kind of like fucking over institutional customers as far as like their shares of stock in these IPOs that were, again, highly lucrative in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, it, uh, <laughs> paid another fine to FINRA in, uh, 2005 for violating rules related to the sale of restricted securities during IPOs. Um, uh, also fined by FINRA same year for it, late or inaccurate reporting of mini- municipal securities transactions. And it was also one of 15 companies that were fined a total of 13 million, uh, from SEC charges that they violated rules. Uh, relating to auction rate securities. Uh, I just love thinking about like him going home and his wife being like, hey, hon, how's work? He's like, ah, I got more fines by FINRA. Another snake day. You want to go to Petco? <laughs> you want to go pet some snakes right now? Yes, but uh, so interesting uh, note, if you watch the uh, Netflix documentary on Hank Paulson, you will learn none of this. <laughs> <laughs> really brief on his time as CEO of Goldman Sachs. And then, of course... Uh, at, by 2005, at the latest, Goldman Sachs is already shorting the housing market mm-hmm. in various capacities, buying what are called uh, credit default swaps entirely from AIG financial products in order to um, bet against these mortgage-backed securities that they are also hawking. And, of course, they were in 2006. While also being very busy not seeing the financial crisis coming. <laughs> Uh, just according to like Forbes, uh, wrote an article in 2007, uh, just looking at like one package uh, that Goldman Sachs was selling in 2006, and just quoting from them, they packaged about 8,000 California second mortgage loans. Second mortgages are like very risky. Uh, and then again from Forbes, the average equity that the second mortgage borrowers had in their home was 0.71 percent. <laughs> that is not a misprint. The average loan to value ratio of the issues borrowers was 90. 99.29 percent wow so these are basically like almost impossible to repay loans right. where and they are also second mortgages so anybody who buys this instrument is second in line to receive payment in the event of foreclosure or whatever else and of course there was you know no documentation when it the, these were entirely fraudulent instruments where 99 percent of the value you know no income loans no money down loans and this is what goldman was hawking uh, in their um, AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities while Hank Paulson was CEO. Hey, David Harvey, what would you say about this? This is absolutely fucking stupid. <laughs> um, oh, and then one other thing. Uh, around 2003, or sorry, around 2000, <laughs> Hank Paulson le- leads the charge to uh, ease capital uh, reserve requirements uh, with the SEC. Uh, at the time, um, in 2000, Firms could be leveraged about 15 to 1. Uh, in 2004, the SEC increases it to 30 to 40 times to 1. Yep. So, again, no uh, responsibility whatsoever for the uh, financial crisis under Hank Paulson. So, lax, you know, people often leave the mortgage aspects at the feet of consumers getting crazy with their finances. Or Even whatever. Hank Paulson does. Yeah, like, he, there's a lot you know, of blame on both sides. But really, it was about like criminal activity oh, yes. and lax regulation and risky products. Right. 
And then that's, well, we'll kind of get into this uh, because he becomes Treasury Secretary in uh, July 2006. Um, again, he takes a huge windfall when he gets to sell his Goldman stock and avoid all this con- uh, all this um, taxes on it. But it's kind of been argued by various people that the way he behaved in the financial crisis uh, might have also had the uh, beneficial effect of him for him of covering up criminal activity he might have engaged in while he was at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> um, because, you know, like his decision when they took over AIG to put a former Goldman Sachs board member in, in as CEO of AIG to make Goldman Sachs completely whole on all their bets and, and these kinds of things, bailouts with taxpayer money to try and, uh, it's argued, avoid some sort of lawsuit by shareholders against Goldman or AIG or these kinds of things, which some of them did occur. But the idea is essentially he was trying to cover his tracks, uh, which maybe, maybe not. Hmm. But um, so I guess we can just kind of go through what he does as Treasury Secretary, uh, because he starts in July 2006. Um, and uh, in August 2007, the financial crisis kind of begins when BNP Paribas is a French bank. It froze withdrawals from their funds exposed to a subprime. Um, this uh, uh, leads to some uh, minor runs and stuff. And then um, Christine Lagarde, who I think was at the IMF at this time, uh, or she might have been involved in the French finance, uh, she recalls in um, uh, various interviews that in February 2008, she tells Hank Paulson that like a tsunami is coming towards you and you were just kind of debating what bathing suit to wear. I remember very well uh, one, um, I think it was a G7 meeting of February 2008 and I remember discussing the issue with, with Hank Paulson and I clearly remember telling Hank <laughs> we're watching this tsunami coming and you just proposing that we ask which swimming costume we're going to put on. What was his response? What was his feeling? Things are pretty much under control. Yes, we are looking at uh, this situation carefully, and uh, yeah, it's under control. Now, he was like, in, in his defense, uh, in Hank Paulson's defense, she was clearly talking about a honk Paulson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, he, he later Case said... Case of mistaken identity. Yes. Well, my friend Honk was standing <laughs> right next to me, so how was I supposed to know <laughs> she meant me? Um, but yeah, so it's like he was warned at least as early as February 2008, and then uh, either through incompetence or, um, again, there's allegations of corruption that maybe he acted either through ideology or loyalty to Goldman or desire to cover up possible criminal activity he might have engaged in as CEO of Goldman. He really didn't start doing anything until August 2008. But so that's like a year. But let's talk about this, though. What's worse? Him being malicious and planning it out and saying, fuck the world, I want to get rich, or him just being such a dullard and not literally paying attention to people warning him? Um, I mean, I guess, like, if he had malicious intent, it's worse, but it's, they're both terrible and they're both... Someone's Kantian. They're they're both illustrative of the idea that putting uh, Goldman Sachs CEOs in charge of uh, the uh, uh, financial (laughs) policy of the United States is not a good idea because they will act in ways that benefit uh, the same financial institutions that, in this case, destroyed trillions of dollars worth of wealth and foreclosed on nine million people. It's like, at best, it's criminal negligence. Yes. It's like if you keep a raccoon in the house, you shouldn't be surprised (laughs) when it raids your Cheerios that you left on the counter. But sometimes, Andy, you have a snake day, and all you got is a raccoon. (laughs) 
Um, but so just to kind of go through the timeline of the financial crisis here, in March 2008, uh, J.P. Morgan gets a federal uh, backstop. The Fed Reserve uh, guarantees $30 billion in Bear Stearns um, uh, debt and uh, liabilities. In exchange, J.P. Morgan buys them uh, for eventually $10 a share, originally $2 a share. Um, and uh, this is kind of like this stabilizes things for a bit but again hank paulson even in interviews now always says nationalization would make the problem worse but i think the way things have played out it is very clear that that is not the case because we've had all these foreclosures we have still you know horrific income inequality still you know low wages etc cetera, etc cetera. and there's uh and again like eight billion dollars some bonuses were paid to all these people in 2008 in the financial industry and all of these things could have been avoided with nationalization and voting shares and actual ability to direct what these banks were doing as opposed to what actually happened which is they got their money and then they said fuck you we don't need to listen to you anymore you have no more leverage over us um they became emboldened right and too big to fail and, and the is, whole moral hazard thing but the, exactly. uh, the the runway has been frosted <laughs> well, we have we have frost. foamed we have foamed the frost and frosted the foam on the runway yeah um but yeah and like that's the other thing is like hank paulson would at the time and later cite moral hazard though now he says he didn't have the legal authority to save lehman but at the time he cites moral hazard and um like, you know what doesn't have moral hazard is nationalizing the banks and wiping out the shareholders. That's my favorite uh, punk band, by the way, Moral Hazard. <laughs> uh, so in uh, June 2008, uh, Hank Paulson has a secret meeting in Moscow with the Goldman Sachs Board of Directors, which is just insane. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the face of it, yeah. without getting into what they said. Yeah, uh, they, they talk for at least an hour, but uh, he, of course, leaves this off his official uh, schedule, though Andrew Ross Sorkin does find out about it. Uh, everybody, he quotes, like, plays it down, like, oh, we just thought the public would get, you know, mad about this, but there was nothing bad going on when uh, he met with the former board of the company that he was running and informed them things that he would do as treasury secretary that they could later <laughs> trade on. Um, but, uh, and then again, uh, we'll kind of get back into this, but there's allegations that maybe they discussed AIG at this meeting, maybe not. Hank Paulson, for his part, says he didn't realize AIG had any problem until September 2008. No, where are they meeting uh, again? Moscow. <laughs> I give it three years and Kanye samples this. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. Oh, man. I mean, that'll be uh, his comeback. Mm, mm. All right, wait a minute, wait a minute. Keep going. Uh, so the other thing that happens is in July 2008, uh, this is from Business Insider, uh, Paulson met with several hedge fund managers and told them that a government takeover of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was a very real possibility. Just a week prior to that meeting, he had testified in the Senate and told media outlets that government intervention in Fannie and Freddie was near impossible. Uh, he would, of course, uh, bail out Fannie and Freddie in September 2008. So July, he's meeting uh, with these hedge fund managers uh, and also... It was hosted by a hedge fund manager who was a former Goldman Sachs employee, this meeting. So it's like there's at least these two incidents where he's like very clearly talking to people in the financial world about what he is going to do right. before he does it. And conceivably, they trade on it, though you can't really show that. And like one person at the Fannie and Freddie meeting says he like called a lawyer who said, don't touch Fannie and Freddie because this could be evidence of insider trading. But 
there's really no way of knowing what people did with this information. Um, Fanny and Freddie sounds like a sex move. Like it's very like, hey, let's, let's not talk about Fanny and Freddie or anything. Like a British porno yes, or something. Yes, yes. <laughs> Freddie and the Fanny. That sounds like a uh, British porn parody of a British sitcom. <laughs> Uh, but so it's kind of interesting where essentially, um, Fanny and Freddie was filmed in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> they play that during the porn as well. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, so the weekend of September 15th is when Lehman runs out of cash, Lehman brothers, and, uh, they get all of the, uh, uh wall street bankers together in the federal reserve of New York, uh, the heads of the various firms. And they're like, find a private solution to this. We're not giving you any money. And uh, they try, and then they try to. They think they can get Barclays to buy Lehman Brothers, but of course Hank Paulson hadn't looped in the British regulator, so the British regulator vetoes it. And uh, then, as we've mentioned, their conversations at the time were like, "Oh, this is moral hazard. This is a message to the market. We're going to let it fail." But then later, uh, they would uh, uh, Paulson and others would say, "Oh, we just didn't have the legal authority," which. Again, a lot of different people, such as Professor Lawrence Ball, have said is bullshit, and they could have done something, they just made a decision not to, and then this is the kind of retroactive history. But regardless, what happens when Lehman fails is because of uh, English bankruptcy law, all of Lehman's assets in London are frozen, so Lehman has like billions of dollars worth of trades, and all of a sudden, people find that on Monday, September 15th, that they can't get their money out of Lehman, all these different financials, so they take, you know, billions of dollars worth of hits all at once, the stock market plunges five or 600 points, um, and it's just a mess, and then uh, uh, later that week, they have to essentially nationalize AIG. Uh, The federal government buys $85 billion in AIG. The government has veto power over decisions from management. They get an 80% stake. And it's uh, it's kind of interesting where one of the first things where uh, Hank Paulson installs a former Goldman uh, Sachs uh, board member who would have been completely aware of AIG's financial transactions with Goldman Sachs, where Goldman Sachs is buying all these credit default swaps by AI, AI, from AIG. Uh, Goldman Sachs installs a, bo- uh, or Hank Paulson installs a Goldman Sachs board member as CEO of AIG, even though the former CEO really wasn't involved in all of these decisions that caused the blow up. He only joined in April 2006, I believe. But regardless, Hank Paulson fires, files the, fires the CEO and puts a Goldman Sachs person in. And one of the first decisions he makes is essentially to pay all of AIG's counterparties with this $85 billion taxpayer bailout, bailout or public money bailout. Uh, all of AIG's counterparties are paid at 100%. No haircuts, no <laughs> discounts, no nothing. Goldman yeah. Sachs gets at least $13 billion in public money from what? this. So it's like, this is kind of like, I guess you can call it the conspiracy theory or at least the suspicion, but if Hank Paulson was not incompetent and was actually directing things in a way, I mean, this is pretty clear evidence yeah. that he's putting Goldman Sachs people in charge of AIG and they are using public money to make themselves whole, at he, least $13 billion. Yeah, so he attached as few strings as possible to mm-hmm. the $85 billion. Yes. Yeah. Right, and it was a guy, Edward Liddy, again, former Goldman Sachs board member who becomes CEO of AIG. Not his first Liddy. professional <laughs> <laughs> um, They also, in October... They uh, so he gets the TARP, which is essentially the Troubled Asset Relief Program, is a seven hundred billion dollar blank check from Congress. 
uh, Hank Paulson gets this to put the money in. And at this point, he's really the most powerful person in America where he has $700 billion to do what he wants with. And what he does is he puts about $250 billion into buying non-voting shares into the major financials, you know, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs, etc. This is in October 2008. And Again, it's just interesting where, essentially, he just gives them the money with no restrictions. Like, we can talk about, uh, certainly, Obama and Tim Geithner deserve a lot of blame for this, but uh, for the crisis and what happened after, but Hank Paulson was really the guy who had $700 billion and anything to do with it, and at every part of the process, he rejected nationalization, and he rejected even just saying to these people, you cannot pay $18 billion in bonuses, which is what they paid, $18 billion in 2008 bonuses when they crashed the entire economy. He didn't say, you can't pay bonuses. He didn't say, we have voting shares. He didn't say anything. He just said, here's the money, lend it out, which they didn't, Mm -hmm. you know? So he could have put those regulations in. He could have been like, you have to yeah. do these things in. Yeah, uh, one of the biggest proponents of wow. what, what passed for nationalization, Neil Kashkari, mm-hmm. he, like, even his idea of the nationalization was, like, uh, you know, a larger, they take a larger ownership share, but they still don't really have much control over the operations of the company mm-hmm. that they're taking a share in. Right. So, like, the it's mostly non-voter, non-voting shares. Um, they don't get to veto like leadership decisions stuff like that um and what a fucking snake right and it's like again maybe it's incompetence maybe it's ideology maybe it's corruption but um maybe it's maybelline (laughs) but regardless he definitely behaved in a way that was extremely beneficial to the financial sector and ultimately preserved it in a uh, much more consolidated but still similar version to the way it existed at the time it created the crisis um And then just kind of going on for the end of his tenure, in November 2008, Citigroup uh, is still fucked up. Even after it's got this bailout money, it it has to do with more layoffs. Its share price drops to $4. So Hank Paulson puts another $20 billion in. They put $25 billion in earlier. And the government guarantees $306 billion in possible losses for Citigroup. Um, And even at this time, Ben Bernanke himself suggests that they buy common stock. Uh, so that they, the government would have voting shares in Citigroup. But Hank Paulson, because he has the TARP authority, he vetoes this, and he says, no, we're buying more non-voting shares. And the government at this point ends up owning more than half of Citigroup, but they have no voting shares. So it's essentially you do nationalization with none of the control. Well, they did have some provisions for control over the company's behavior. In mm. fact, enough to where the point where Obama was considering and briefly ordered for a city to be broken up. Right. He passed a memo to um, Geithner. Tim Geithner, who there's a New York Times article out that basically goes over. He essentially slow-walked the order long enough to where it got lost in the system. Hmm. Tim Geithner would, of course, go on to uh, scam poor people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, he's only worth uh, several million dollars. There's also this great um, clip from when he was treasury secretary getting grilled by Bernie Sanders about uh, social security, which is forecast basically to go bankrupt in what is it like 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. And that can be very easily averted by just raising the cap on uh, incomes that can be taxed because it's capped at something like a hundred thousand. And so basically wealthy people pay as much as you know an upper middle class person and so sanders just kind of grills him about this for a second 
Should we lift the cap and solve the Social Security problem by asking the wealthy to contribute more into the system? That, that wouldn't be my suggestion. Why? I, I, Don't you think it's fair that at a time when the wealthiest people have never had it so good and the gap between the rich and the poor is going wide, that simply I, lifting that cap can solve the problem? I, I think there are, you know, I, I, I think you and I are not going to solve the discussion. This is a situation right here at a, at a public hearing. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe you'll be one of, the, one of those who comes to the table, and that will be your idea. Okay. <laughs> Plot twist. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Bernard. I just, I just wanted to round out the uh, James Adomian impressions <laughs> subjects mm -hmm. for the episode. But just, uh, just the, like, pure evasiveness of, like, stay away from my money socialist. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but so, and then, like, another interesting thing is that um, uh, another guy, Dan Jester, was a former deputy CFO of um, Goldman Sachs, who uh, Hank Paulson put in charge in summer of 2008. Uh, well, he, he was kind of like a contractor for Hank Paulson in summer 2008. But interestingly enough, an AIG executive told uh, the New York Times that Jester was calling many of the shots at AIG between mid-September uh, and the end of October 2008. And again, former deputy CFO at Goldman Sachs, who in fact owned shares in Goldman Sachs at the time that he was calling the shots at AIG to make all of their counterparties, including Goldman Sachs, whole at 100%, which of course he's financially benefiting from. Right, right. So it's like this whole thing is so insane to me. Uh, yes, the one of the shots that he, uh, Dan Jester decided was AIG handed over $18.7 billion in cash to the CDO uh, counterparties in exchange for zero concessions. Hey, Dennis Leary, what do you think of this? But so I guess, I mean, that's really the end of the Hank Paulson impact on the story. And he really set the table for what came after, which is Tim Geithner as Treasury Secretary continued Hank Paulson strategy, which is keep the financial giants propped up, make them more consolidated, and certainly don't nationalize or attempt to uh, severely reform them with the leverage that you do have after they destroyed the economy. And now 10 years out, here we are still waiting patiently for the next financial crisis. And these institutions are even bigger than they were before. But fortunately, he saved it for us. Um, America is already great. <laughs> uh, so I guess just like uh, as we're kind of winding down here, um, uh, we can talk about Hank Paulson, Christian scientist. Uh, oh, but I also want to play Hank Paulson's One Regret. This is from, This is all you need to hear from the Netflix documentary that is a complete fluff piece on Hank Paulson. When I'm looking back at some of the things that I could have done better, the first one I come to is that I was never able to, train my to convince the American people that what we did with TARP was not for these banks. It was for them. It was to save Main Street. It was to save our economy from having a catastrophe. So the whole reason I'm doing this is not because I want to look back, but because I have increasingly come to the view that it's important that there be a historical record for those that come after me. So we don't replay this movie all over again. <laughs> This was immediately before his operation for throat cancer. <laughs> In a way, but, I helped you, didn't I? 
Well, it, it, it was a week before his canceled operation for throat <laughs> cancer. <laughs> when I met with the Goldman Sachs board in Moscow, I was doing that for Main Street. <laughs> when I warned hedge funds that uh, Fannie and Freddie were going to be bailed out months in advance, I was really thinking about the victims of foreclosure. When I used uh, $0 of my $700 billion blank check to bail out underwater homeowners, I did that for Main Street. Well, just the like paternalism of it, the like condescending paternalism where it's like people don't understand that I helped them. It's like yeah. if everyone's really mad at you, it's not because they misunderstand how well things are going. Right. <laughs> like things are going bad and you clearly made them worse. <laughs> I just love that, like, his excuse is, like, my line that always makes a fight with my wife worse. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I should have just explained what I was doing better. <laughs> Not that I'm sorry for anything, but clearly you didn't understand my communications with you. Um, but yes, and uh, Hank Paulson in uh 2016 would endorse jeb bush for president oh. hell yeah uh for some reason that investment didn't pan out oh. but he would later go on to endorse hillary clinton uh <laughs> so and that investment that man knows how to pick winners <laughs> uh but oh i did want to just mention this thing from the biography of hank paulson christian scientist um i mean he is kind of the embodiment of yeah those two establishment politicians where it's like completely self-serving completely out of touch from like you know what people need and not really caring and then when it comes when the cameras turn on saying hey i'm doing this for you right and right, you yeah. need to recognize that um but so uh, Hank Paulson, Christian scientist, uh, just from the biography, uh, Paulson had his own health problems in 94, although nobody inside Goldman Sachs was aware of them. Some people outside the firm recall hearing him describing them as involving, quote, cancer. But Paulson says, quote, as a Christian scientist, I don't go to doctors and get diagnosis. I don't believe I was dealing with cancer. I, was sure, I sure didn't feel well for a period of time in early 1994. And in summer of 1994, I remember working from home and doing a lot of praying for a couple of months where I felt no energy at all. I didn't feel well until the problem was met. I have relied on prayer for health care all of my life. He believes he has had many such, quote, physical healings. Mm. And I like, uh, just like the millions of non-billionaires in America, <laughs> Hank rely. Paulson relies on prayer yes. for health care. Yes. <laughs> so don't say he is not a man of the people. <laughs> um, but yes, unfortunately, he's still kicking. He's 70-something, and uh, we'll see if we get a people's tribunal to sort out what Hank Paulson was involved in. Um, but is, yeah. Is that everything? Do we have any other drops we didn't get to? Uh some stuff it's stuff that you covered um here's i guess like most of the stuff uh was just stuff that you said but then there's this secretary paulson spoke throughout the fall and all the potential root causes of this and there are plenty he called him uh so i i'm not sure you're not being serious about that are you <laughs> what would you have expected uh I, what do you what were you looking for that you didn't see he was the senior advocate for prohibiting the regulation of credit default swaps this is a Bush administration and also lifting the leverage limits on the investment banks. So, uh, again, what he mentioned those things. I never heard him mention those things. 
Can we turn this off for a second? <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, from the documentary Inside Job. That was uh, Hank Paulson's former undersecretary of uh, the Treasury, who I believe was portrayed in the HBO movie by uh, Eric from that 70s show. Oh, really? Which is why they have the scene where they go, nice job not nationalizing the banks, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> Topher Grace? Is that Eric? Is that the actor? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I do like that when he was deciding not to nationalize the banks, he went to Russia to consult with people where they denationalized <laughs> all, pretty much all the industries in the country, and then it just like plunged into fire and chaos. And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, this is this is the system we should shoot for." Right. Oh, and we didn't we didn't get into it, but Goldman Sachs became. Well, people call it a bank because it's an investment bank, but that's mm-hmm. it wasn't an FDIC like depository institution. Yes, and they were able to apply for and become one in like a couple weeks. Really? Right. Yeah. And then in they... order to so that they could buy back the shares that um, Berkshire, like yeah. the position Warren they Buffett took in made them. a five yeah. billion dollar investment. <laughs> but it's also interesting about like the decision to make uh, to give Goldman access to the discount window, which it's like the Federal Reserve gives banks loans at below the prevailing interest rate, was essentially free money that Goldman was mm-hmm. at various points lending back to the federal government by buying treasuries, so making a profit for doing nothing. You know, and it's like again, just free money spigot to prop up Goldman, which Hank Paulson was <clears throat> formerly the CEO of, as opposed to nationalizing Goldman. And you know, uh, we've talked a bit about Sweden. The Swedish model was even talked about at the time in the 1990s. Sweden nationalized the banks during a banking crisis and had a fine recovery. Uh, but the Iceland model is the other example, which is in the 2008 financial crisis. Iceland was fucked because uh, before the crisis, uh, one of their um, uh, their prime minister had uh, privatized the banks. And then in the crisis, they threw that government out and nationalized the banks again and have had a much more stable recovery. Yeah, I mean, Iceland was arguably even more fucked in terms of like having it's a you know it's an island of 300,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> and a much larger percentage of its economy is finance even than the US. And so like all of those banks suddenly went under and they chose not to bail them out and also to let to have the companies be put into federal receivership. And so like the government took a control over those banks and they had a much shorter period of time before they eventually you know became a recover you know got out of the crisis recovered that always gets me like how small iceland is it's like wichita decided that they needed to privatize all their <laughs> banks to, or they needed to like nationalize all their banks and turn it around but uh i think we can all agree that hank paulson is correct that things could have been a lot worse because if we'd nationalized the banks then the government would be making decisions <laughs> <laughs> which is not something that happened in the 2008 financial crisis um as but, opposed to rich people <laughs> who have no yes, accountability the government, <laughs> the government andy um but yeah, I mean, Hank Paulson is uh, pretty fascinating for a billionaire or maybe not quite a billionaire. He's uh, going to donate all of his money to conservation when he dies, which will, of course, do nothing to offset the um, <clears throat> uh, impending death of all human life. <laughs> he may yeah. or may not be a billionaire, but he certainly has billionaire dick energy. That's I think true. That's, that's really the main thing about the podcast. Mm-hmm. 
He's done a billionaire's level of destruction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To, to human life. But I got to say, the raccoon stuff, though, really adorable. Really, for a snake, pretty cool. Pretty cool. And with that... I'd say he uh, really may, uh, got into and made a big mess of America's trash. <laughs> he, he met with Mark Zuckerberg and was like, uh, you know, a million foreclosures is not cool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's cool? Nine million foreclosures. <laughs> Uh, but yes uh, thoughts and prayers to uh, Hank Paulson we hope he's not somewhere dry heaving right now listening Mm -hmm. to this Mm -hmm. and uh, we hope that uh, his prayers will continue to uh, provide him with all of the healing that he did not get on his fucked up pinky (laughs) and uh, and we hope somebody will find out the truth about what he did in the Nixon White House from 1972 to 1973 you think that coach could have fixed his pinky and then he was like no I don't believe in this. <laughs> that coach is like, I have a really bad feeling about what you're going to do in 30 years. <laughs> and with that, this has been Grub Stakers. Uh, new episode uh, every week. My name's Yogi Paul. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Sean McCarthy. Steve Jeffers. All right. Thanks for listening. Good night. <laughs>